Today we present a study so fresh that you can almost smell the wedding through your speakers. I got a sneak peek at the results and I'm really excited to get the chance to discuss it today. It's safe to say that it counts among the most ambitious and detailed and greenest analysis of decarbonizing a whole region of countries, at least what I've seen. Energy flows do not stop at the border and several studies like the FlexRest project have shown the benefits of integrating along those borders and across sectors. The Nordic Clean Energy Scenarios, which is the study that we discussed today, does exactly that. Welcome to Energy PolicyCast, where we share recent research in energy policy. I'm your host, Daniel Sneel, from Technical University of Denmark's research group on energy economics and systems analysis. We had the great pleasure of no less than two of the very senior people in Nordic Energy. They each lead their individual organizations, but they are also senior in terms of decades of experience in energy. I've had the pleasure of working with both of them in my time here at Technical University of Denmark. So uh, welcome Klaus and Kenneth. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you for allowing me being here. As you mentioned, uh, my name is uh, Klaus Gøtte, and I'm still in, in the energy business. Now I'm the CEO of uh, Nordic Energy Research, which is a platform for Nordic cooperation on energy research and policy development. We are under the auspice of the Nordic Council of Ministers, which is this uh, intergovernmental uh, cooperation between the five uh, Nordic countries and, and the independent areas, Greenland, Faroe Islands and, and Oland. Thanks. And Kenneth, uh, you're active in research and consultancy, so can you explain a bit about yourself? Yeah, my background is actually also from the Technical University. I think I was around 18 years as researcher and leader uh, in energy system analysis. Uh, and then in 19, I switched to the Swedish Environmental Institute uh, to start up an energy modeling group there, which is uh, ongoing. But also at the same time, I started my own consultancy company called Energy Modeling Lab in Copenhagen, where we are working with yeah energy modeling and advising governments uh, around the world in planning and modeling. Right, and, and you two and a lot of other people have collaborated on, on this study, the Nordic Clean Energy Scenarios that we're going to discuss today. But uh, perhaps first we can discuss a bit about the motivation for, for this study. Um, it adds itself to, uh, I think, a long list of analysis of decarbonized Nordics uh, and Nordic energy systems. So uh, what, what made you do it uh, at this point in time? Maybe I can start. Um, if we, you look at the political side, then there's a lot of ambitious uh, policy goals within uh, climate in, in the Nordic countries. And together, the Nordic countries have made a declaration for becoming carbon neutral. Uh, at the same time, there's a Nordic vision of becoming the most integrated and sustainable world, uh, region in the world, which include uh, being a green region, a competitive region, and a social sustainable region. So it means that we need to, to be carbon neutral, but we also need to do it the right way. So we do it, so we become carbon neutral, but also make sure that we are competitive and we have the social sustainability included as well. And this kind of motivate that we need to find out which kind of pathway can we take and what do we need to do in the next decade? We need to take that. So this was our motivation for for starting it up. So so perhaps you can also set the stage for us where in, in terms of where we are geographically and in terms of uh, energy decarbonization of the Nordics. So so what level are we at are we at right now and and what are you looking at in in the study? 
The energy cooperation in the Nordic countries have, have been going on for many, many years, and we're quite famous for the energy cooperation, and we're doing very well. Especially on the electricity side, we're doing extremely well. Actually, we have a large share of renewable energy, both hydro and, and wind, solar, uh, and, and other uh, non-fossil fuel technology, meaning that the electricity side is cooperating quite a lot, and we are... Uh, way ahead of many other con- countries around the world uh, in that side. But when it comes to the other sectors, we are co-reading quite a lot, but we need to progress there. So I think the electricity sector could ca- actually be the the facilitating of, of other uh, sectors. Mm. And Kenneth, where, if, if in terms of geography, I think we're in the same boundary as Klaus just described, uh, that, that we are looking at the Nordics uh, in, in this study. Um, so that is, I guess, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden. But are you also looking beyond uh, those borders uh, in in the analysis? Yeah, as the energy systems are interlinked uh, also to to uh, to rest of Europe and so on, we are uh, we are doing uh, two things with the the modeling uh, in the modeling approach we are taking in this. So we have uh, one model covering these five Nordic countries where we have all sectors. So we look really at this. Cross-sectoral uh, collaboration and synergies that you can harvest from that, but then we model the power grid on the whole of Europe in another model, uh, so we can uh, keep track on the trade of power uh, and where to install, for instance, electrolyzers and so on. Uh, so we have this competition uh, between the Nordic countries and the Europe, and to better to better capture the potential of, of exporting green electricity from from the Nordic countries and uh, and uh, maybe also hydrogen. So and so we are linking these two approaches to to take uh, these uh, systems into a pro- into account. So so if if I just follow up on that, essentially boiling down the conclusions, uh, Kenneth, is it technically feasible to decarbonize towards 2050? Yeah, uh, that is uh, the short answer. <laughs> Our finding is uh, if we believe in the projections of the uh, technology development that is uh, like common uh, knowledge or what is used. By uh, around the world, then it seems that the, the, some of the critical technologies will be ready before, and that will be like CCS and Power to X. Uh, the uh, technology is lagging a bit behind right now, mm-hmm. but everything else seems to be on the right way. So the technologies are there, and the time is there. Are there actually? But of course, uh, we need also to make it happen to reach it. So, so. Uh, Touching on from 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 that part of the conclusion, Klaus, uh, uh, how about the economy? Is is it actually feasible to to make the transition? It is feasible, and if I I understand your question right, then you also ask if is it too expensive? <laughs> and and the good thing here is the good news is that when you look at it in a social economic way, you can actually do it at the same cost as it, it cost to drive the system today to dri- to get a a carbon neutral system. So, so and this is really much to do with with the energy efficiency improving, uh, so you get more cheaper technologies and producing them uh, more effectively, and also the cost of other technologies, of course. So now we actually know that that it's it's technically and economically feasible to to make this transition but let's let's dig a bit more deeper into the results of of the study 
Um, part of it, uh, or in the beginning, you mentioned the challenge is uh, how to strike a balance between what may be cost effective and what will be politically, socially and environmentally acceptable. And, and I'm a big fan of sustainability. And uh, that's for me pretty much the standard definition of, of the fundamental pillars of sustainability. That's the social part and the environmental part and the economic part. So it's interesting and exciting for me to see that you go beyond the traditional engineer and economist energy system model optimization. But how how has this view on sustainability uh, transpired into your analysis? Uh, perhaps maybe you can just give a, a few examples. Yeah, of course. We we want to these uh, more soft uh, parts. We have we have we need to translate them into something a model can understand. So we need need to transfer it into some numbers. And one thing is uh, how much can we accept of onshore wind? So we've been looking on different levels, uh, what can be accepted in the different countries. We see a lot of opposition in especially Norway right now for onshore wind. And uh, that you can have the same with solar PV, how much area can we take up with that? And then we have uh, this huge need for uh, new transmission lines, uh, power transmission lines, which also can cause some, uh, some debate. So you can say so we have different levels of this uh, as boundaries for some for some of the scenarios to 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 cover this span of uh, results. So some scenarios we assume that people will uh, are happy to have wind turbines <laughs> in the backyard, and some scenarios uh, they don't. And we can see and and that we can actually meet the targets. But of course, it's uh, becoming more expensive if we uh, con- uh, constrain the models more, uh, not allowing for. So much on showing, for instance. Thanks for that, Klaus. Just to add to what Kenny just said, that the scenario is is made not to get different outcome in the end, uh, but actually we have a, a target being carbon neutral uh, in in the Nordics. So the scenario is is, is different way of uh, obtaining this. So this is also quite new. So as Kenny just mentioned, is is different ways to do it, but we all reach carbon neutrality in all scenarios, and then you compare them those to see benefits and, and, and cost and whatever. So you have many different paths lead, leading to Rome, but you will get to Rome eventually. You apply to, to do that, you apply five main tools or what you call uh, solution tracks. Um, and I just uh, to list them up, they are direct electrification, they are, are power to X, uh, bioenergy, carbon capture technologies, bio bioenergy and so on and so forth, and uh, behavioral change. Why not just pick one of them, for instance? Why not just go with batteries and put batteries in, in everything, uh, any moving and non-moving thing that, that you can find connected uh, with a plug to the power system? We are uh, putting a lot of batteries in, especially in the transport sector. That's where we see the development is going really fast. And actually, the development in transport sector also releases uh, uh, sources for other sectors. In the former studies, we have been uh, running out of biomass pretty far, quite fast, because the transport sector needed a lot of biofuels. This time, because of the development in electric vehicles, uh, we don't see a demand for biofuels for this road transport and so on. Now it's only for uh, aviation and shipping. So that actually releases uh, some biomass there. Uh, So, uh, yeah, so we see a lot of electrification in, in transport sector. Also, potentially industry, and uh, so actually, the electrification is like the uh, you can say the backbone in this chains, because it's uh, many places it's cheaper, it's a lot more efficient, so we can do it with uh, less uh, total energy consumption, 
and then it also releases resources for other sectors where it's harder to go electric. So, so actually, it, it, if I should summarize, electrification is not the answer, but it's the answer for a lot of things in this scenario. Yeah, so none of these, uh, you say, five uh, solution tracks will take us all the way. We can't just rely on CCS, we can't just rely on power to x because there's limits on where it can be used and what it can do. Uh, so we need a combination and we are starting like uh, from electrification we see as like the starting point uh, because we already started that development um, and uh, as I say then then it moves into the other sectors uh, and but also where it's getting harder we need some of the also uh, not so mature technologies right now and also more expensive. So uh, if we look at the numbers we, we could uh, go down and, and look at what happens to the primary energy supply of uh, of the system. You state that there is a drop from 42% uh, fossils in 2020 to uh, somewhere around 6 to 9% by 2050. So we still have a uh, tiny bit of fossils, but but uh, overall a substantial drop. Can you explain a bit about what, what happens in, in, in different sectors and uh, in the energy supply side? Yeah, we can see, uh, as uh, Klaus mentioned, the power sector is well on the way and will be fossil-free very soon, in a few years, uh, five years or so. Uh, then we have, and transport sector is uh, speeding up, as we see it right now, and we expect that you will not uh, see any new uh, uh, combustion engines uh, sold after 2030. 2030. Uh, so electric cars, more or less, will take over. Some hybrids, some uh, hydrogen, maybe also. Uh, and industry uh, has also the potential for for moving away from fossil. A lot of the industry, but we have some uh, challenges with the heavy industry, where it's, it's like in cement and 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 uh, and uh, iron and steel, where they can switch. But it's new technologies and much more expensive right now. And then we also have to remember that we are using uh, optimization models where we are minimizing the total cost. So we ask the model to find the cheaper solution. So the models actually leave some fossil fuels behind in in the hard to to uh, abate abate <laughs> hard to abate sectors, yeah, and instead go for some CCS to capture CO two instead. Mm. This doesn't mean that they can't uh, go uh, fossil free. Actually, uh, Swedish steel industry is very much uh, focusing on that, and they actually seems it seems that they they are planning to go uh, fossil free. So you can say our results shows that uh, the optimal solutions still uh, leave back some fossil fuels, but we see what's going on in the sectors right now that actually most of them are aiming for becoming uh, total green. And so that just says that we can go even further in the Nordic countries. So we can go net zero sooner or more negative even maybe. That's interesting. So I, I guess that's uh, that's sort of the classical challenge of, of having uh, decarbonization or introduction of renewables up to a certain share of, let's say, 80 or 90 percent. And then what you do is actually solving that problem by, by including other other solutions to take the final, let's say, 10 percent instead of having a very expensive solution to cover everything. Does does this approach uh, signal a more pragmatic and, and more uh, realistic uh, approach than, than maybe have been the, the approach of previously? Or what, what do you think about that? When you look at, at it as in a holistic way, when you look at it system-wise, instead of just looking at sector by sector, then it's, it's much more realistic, it's, it's much more feasible, because you, you kind of use the benefits and the synergies and also the cooperation between the countries in the Nordics 
actually benefit quite a lot. So you actually obtain it uh, in, in the most optimal way. So in that way, it, it, it's it's a better way than just looking at one sector by the time or one country by the time. If if we dig into uh, to one one particular part of of the electricity supply, you s- in in the analysis, uh, electricity share of final energy consumption rises from around thirty percent uh, in twenty twenty to to around fifty percent by twenty fifty, uh, and the uh, Nordic electricity demand overall increases by 40 to 100 percent, so almost a doubling uh, in in some of the scenarios. And I think hydropower stays the same. So so that production comes from other sources. And and we have discussed wind already a little bit. Or it it come it ends up making maybe up uh, one fourth or one third of the total electricity production, and that's that's quite a lot. Can you just Elaborate on on will that be offshore or onshore, and where will it be, and and how will it be deployed? Yeah, actually, it will be uh, deployed in all countries, more or less. Uh, but uh, onshore actually hits the limit we set in the model, uh, so it goes up to around uh, the social acceptance part. This, yeah, our, our translation of the social acceptance. Right. So it goes up to to around fifty uh, gigawatts onshore total in in the five countries. We have scenarios that go further where we see where we release that uh, just to to see how and then it goes uh, even to uh, 100 gigawatt or something like that i think on the offshore side it goes it grows a lot uh, because we don't have so much there now and but it depends on the scenarios uh, so it's a uh, we reach around uh, 35 to 60 gigawatts offshore but in the special studies where we are made uh, to see what the Nordic's role could be in exporting hydrogen, supplying the, the European market with hydrogen, we see uh, even we see much more uh, offshore. But there will also be offshore co- uh, parks directly connected to the European grid. So you can see, yeah, they are in uh, Nordic waters, but they are actually supplying or producing hydrogen or supplying electricity directly to to Central Europe. Right. Let, let's just pick up on on the fuel production because I, that that's uh, a very interesting part of of the study, I think, and of the overall hype on on fuel production in the energy society these days. Um, it plays quite a big role in in the results of of your scenarios. Can but maybe we'll just uh, take a step back and explain the difference between power to X and uh, biorefining because both those are in play in in the scenarios. Can you just quickly elaborate on what what are the differences in, in those two terms? Yeah, biorefining or biofuels is based on different uh, biomass products, wood, uh, woody products, straw or whatever, that is converted into oils or gases, uh, green oils and green gases that can be used in uh, in normal engines, uh, even uh, and and so on. And yeah, the d- different processes. So you can say that that uh, there you can uh, use a gasifier fisher traps and other uh, technologies here uh, but often it will be a mix uh, and they can in principle be refined as i said to to match the fossil fuels types so it's easy to replace and fill in drop in in ex- already existing uh, technologies and they uh, and then we have the power to x uh, technology which is uh, uh, based on electrolysis, so using green electricity to produce hydrogen, and then this hydrogen can be uh, a building block for new fuels as well. But uh, often they are mixed uh, because you need some, if you want to have uh, high uh, energy density fuels out of the power to X or the hydrogen, 
you need to add some uh, carbon and so on and you can get that carbon from biomass and then you have are mixing these two types of plants which will often be the case but you can also capture co2 from other places and use the carbon from there and that is what we call ccu carbon capture and usage which then can be uh, used to build uh, fuels uh, uh, from uh, with hydrogen and that carbon it's quite interesting because i i, I find this uh, dichotomy between at least the current discussion on the very eager investments made in hydrogen uh, versus investors who are skeptical but but your modeling actually shows that that this is uh, sort of a no regret solution to to follow that path and speaking of that i think you state that it is a no regret solution uh, that there should be developed a roadmap for nordic hydrogen infrastructure uh, and it should consider both uh, green and blue hydrogen and and just to recap you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think green Hydrogen is based on renewable sources, whereas blue hydrogen is uh, maybe based on fossil sources, but with the carbon capture uh, associated with it. Um, but why why not just uh, pure green hydrogen uh, in if, if we are to transition? I, I think if that that we need a quite uh, fast transition right now, and if you do do that, we have the the natural gas that we can decarbonize with uh, CCS right now. So so we can speed up the hydrogen society, whatever you call it, by using blue hydrogen right now, and then in the future have the target of of becoming uh, total green. But I think it's needed to to speed it up. We are on track to get a lot of green as well, but it takes time. So now I'm I'm getting a bit philosophical. So I'll just ask you and, and the listeners to to uh, hang on and and I think there will be a point with <laughs> the, with this so in terms of, of fuels produced uh, if we compare to the US uh, and the fracking revolution as they call it they went from producing I think six million barrels per day of, of oil equivalents in by uh, the year 2000 to 12 million in 2019 so that's uh, doubling in in 20 years. And we're we're talking uh, roughly the, t- the same time frame uh, in the Nordic clean energy scenarios. Um, and here, uh, hydrogen production increases substantially from from almost nothing uh, to somewhere between uh, 135 to 500 terawatt hours. So my bag of the envelope comparison is that uh, that's equivalent to suddenly producing is somewhere around 200,000 to 800,000 barrels of of oil per day in terms of pure energy energy con- content and i'm just <laughs> this is a quite open question but what does that tell you is is that also a revolution uh, like in the us uh, despite the numbers being a fraction of the us uh, boom and is is it a fair comparison at all to, to make you think it's a fair comparison in the matter of speaking that it will compete on the gas market. You can say this: the the, the hydrogen produced in the Nordics will somehow put, uh, compete with the U.S. gas. Uh, so it really depends on how, if there come like a CO two tax on importing gas from U.S. and so on, and a lot of other things will uh, dis- decide if there's a business case for this. Uh, but the projections made by the EU Commission about the demand for hydrogen for transport and industries in Europe is quite big. Uh, and uh, with in this study, we show that maybe the Nordic countries can supply, I guess it's up to almost 20% of that, because we have a lot of uh, resources, especially wind, 
uh, that can uh, where we can have a very uh, cheap power to produce uh, relatively cheap hydrogen so but of course it's a it's a uncertain but uh, as you can see many developers are now uh, moving in that direction so a lot of people are believing in this market yeah i don't want to put words in your mouth but i i think it seems pretty revolutionary uh, that we suddenly get this amount of energy production uh, so that's interesting klaus you wanted to add maybe if you use another word then you can say this is a window of opportunities <laughs> because as kenny just mentioned the nordics they have the the potential of producing a lot of green electricity so so and we can do it rather cheap uh, offshore for example so 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 it's a window of opportunity for for the nordic to to again take a lead within the energy and also for for more uh, remote area or area that are not grid connected like iceland which is, has no transmission line to other countries mm. they have a possibility now to to export energy that is actually green right right So, so uh, maybe also we we, uh, we have a lot to talk about. And looking into the carbon capture side of things, we were just speaking about the blue hydrogen, which is dependent on, on the carbon capture part. What what are your uh, assumptions on on how that's going to happen, and what are the the shares and the impacts it will have in in the studies that that you've made? Yeah, again, uh, as we are using optimization models, we feed it with technologies and see what comes out <laughs> reaching the targets. Uh, so, and of course, uh, CCS is not kicking in at, as first option because it's still quite expensive. But when we reach uh, some of the heavy industries and so on, it starts kicking in. And is, and also until we have uh, the f- green fuels for shipping and aviation and so on, they can also help uh, the way there. But we also have uh, a specific problem in Denmark and Iceland because uh, our land use and land use change uh, greenhouse gas balance is really bad it's a uh, very uh, quite negative so so uh, we have a very negative uh, negative balance so alone that uh, iceland is eight uh, million tons a year they have to capture to just stay in balance so and they there's no other option in iceland to do that than than uh, capture co2 from somewhere and denmark is uh, as i remember also three uh, to four million tons Uh, that we have to capture and and then we also have the challenge with the agriculture in Denmark uh, so it depends on how much they are reducing how much other sectors have to 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 capture so we end up cap- uh, solving uh, you can say the reduction of green greenhouse gases in the project but like 10 to 12 percent I think is covered by by uh, co2 capture uh, and some of this uh, is actually u- used for fuel production also so it's uh, some of these re- reused maybe 25% i think i think it seems that, that we're quite busy in terms of when it has to start because when i i looked at the charts in the report it seems to be st- taking off already by 2025 uh, so someone needs to uh, <laughs> to put the, the engine in gear to 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 make this work out is that attached to a specific project or is is that again the model that that assumes that that uh, No, of of course we have like uh, led it up to the model to find out when we should do it. But then of, uh, we also looked if there's uh, projects ongoing, and and what we see is the, uh, there there's uh, projects on waste incineration. So actually these can cover the first parts right. we see, but then you need more, and uh, so you need to include almost all the waste incineration plants and some industries, and then. Uh, actually, because we need to reach this target, it actually changed the future energy system, especially in Denmark, as we have seen it compared to other studies. Because the cheapest option of uh, capturing CO2 is from uh, 
biomass uh, uh, power plants or district uh, combined heat and power plants uh, fueled with the biomass and uh, they were about to be phased out in the near future in Denmark because uh, wind, wind is taking over uh, another uh, technologies but actually we see that we keep some of these plants uh, and even build new just to be able to capture the CO2 we need to capture then moving on into uh, maybe away from the technology but but not that far away in one of the tools uh, that you apply or the, the pathways is the behavioral change that is necessary uh, for, for the transition and the social acceptance and so on for the listeners uh, and me as citizens in, in that region will will that require a certain uh, tough viking attitude to to bear that burden of of the transition or how do you imagine that 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 The people will be affected by by this kind of transition. Yeah, no, no, we don't think we are being really uh, very tough on people here. Uh, we're just looking at okay, what could have some influence in different. So we could see a different uh, kind of growth rates in the especially heavy industry and so on. That could be. So we both look at, at a lower and a higher growth rate just to see what impact that have. And then, as I said, we are playing around also with the amount of onshore wind we can accept. Uh, but we also uh, have one scenario where we imagine that that people will go for a lot more uh, uh, car sharing, car pooling, and so on, which reduces the number of cars tremendously, mm. like, uh, <laughs> and therefore also the cost in such a scenario. So, so you can see we we are uh, changing some assumption and see okay, what impact does it have on the results? on the costs, on the emissions, on, on the fuels used and so on. So you can see all these uh, different scenarios will be available for policymakers and others to go in and look and see what does it mean that we do this and this and this. Mm. So it's not like we are not saying that people have to change this way, but we're more looking if they change this way, what could happen or how would it influence the system? Then just touching upon the robustness of the results, because for instance, lately we've seen a sharp increase in the European carbon price um, And is is that a prerequisite for for this transition, or is it sort of the chicken and the egg uh, problem that that we have that one thing will follow the other? Uh, no, yeah, of course, some some policies have to be uh, set in place to meet this target. So we have been uh, running these as target scenarios. So so we told the models that you need to reach this in 2030. You need to reach this before 50. And the models will do so if we have uh, 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 enough uh, technologies to solve it in the database. So, but then you can go back and look at okay, what uh, carbon price, marginal carbon price to or CO2 price do we see? And we end up with some six, eight hundred uh, uh, Danish crowns per ton of CO2. So it, it's in low end of what you see in other studies. Roughly but this 100 is, euros. I yeah, think. but this is socio-economic calculations. So we have a. Uh, lower interest rate and we don't have taxes and so on so if you should compare to other studies you should maybe multiply with 1.5 or something like that to the, so you can see from the analysis we can tell you what uh, kind of co2 price we need to get this development so right then if, if we move uh towards uh, the solutions and the recommendations that that you you can make uh, upon these scenarios are based on on, on what you find uh, it, for me it seems at least and I think you also touch upon it uh, in, in the study that this kind of infrastructure deployment requires a whole new level of collaboration among the countries that we're talking about 
Can you maybe speak a bit about uh, how we've done things previously in the Nordic countries and then how we may need to do them onwards? As I, as I started to say, the, the electricity sector has, has has been cooperating for many years and they are actually extremely uh, effective right now. And I think it's, it's the Nordic energy cooperation on the electricity is a role model uh, for many countries around the world. But when then, when you then look at the other sectors and, and you have these ambitious targets and you see that the models say you have to do something now before 2030 in order to make the goals, then uh, uh, a shift or a transition is, is needed in all these sectors. And we really need to speed up the processes. But again, then it's a political choice how to do it. The scenario just shows a feasible way of doing it. So this integrated approach to 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 optimize across uh, country borders uh, will will make the transition more feasible. Yeah, I'm sure of that. I think we need the Nordic cooperation to 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 obtain it because we are similar in many ways in the Nordic countries, which make us trust each other and make us good in cooperation. But the differences make the cooperation strong. We we build on these other differences to 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 make sure that we kind of uh, supplement each other. That's what needed. I think that conclusion also falls in line with what we saw in episode 13 with the waste incineration presented by Marie and Amalia. So, so I think that's yet another proof in a long line of studies that <laughs> that speaks for for the integration. Kennedy, you wanted to follow up? Yeah. Also, uh, all these infrastructures they are in, uh, they depend on each other, or they are uh, uh, interfering with each other. You can say because. If you have problems in building uh, uh, new transmission lines, power transmission lines, you can't solve that by moving uh, production of hydrogen around and then uh, transport hydrogen instead. And also, so so whole, and the whole where you put the power to X production, you can utilize the waste heat from that if you're next to a district heating network and so on. And all this, so so maybe it's easy to plan it within a country, but these are so big energy flows that it will be really uh, beneficial to plan it at least on Nordic level, probably also uh, uh, later on European level. But I think it's a good chance for the Nordics to show how it can be done uh, because it's uh, complicated and we need to speed up. Yes, and, and speaking of speeding up, I, I noticed that there's a lot of large infrastructure to, to be deployed we've discussed the transmission already and but slow technologies like wind and nuclear also uh, are included do we need to to shake things up to actually achieve the the speed of planning and permitting phases to to, to make this transition before the glaciers are melting i say there are some areas where we, we know we can start right away like electrification of industry and so on all the solutions are there uh, but they need a push Uh, and then, uh, and also in the, the district heating sector, they just need a little push to go almost to become fully green there also. But uh, when we're talking about these big infrastructures, CO2 capture, we need to transport around CO2 around and we need to put it in the ground somewhere. So that needs planning uh, and it takes time. So, so we really need to start up. Uh, on, on these things to be able to to meet the targets in the long term, but that shouldn't hold us from doing the things we know we can do right now. Uh, so, so I think that this it's important to find this balance and uh, that uh, we keep the politicians awake. <laughs> That's a good ambition, I think. Okay, moving into uh, the future, uh, I'm interested in, in uh, two dimensions mainly. Firstly, can it, uh, maybe you can just explain a bit about where you see uh, 
uncharted territory uh, in terms of where where do we need uh, further analysis uh, re- regarding this transition? I think uh, as we are looking now at, uh, at these five countries, all sectors, then of course we are looking quite aggregated. Uh, so, but I think it's a really good starting point to start look more looking more detail down in sectors. So, so uh, I think more detailed sector analysis to see how fast can this actually happen and where are the barriers and so on uh, would be like a good next step. Would I say? Interesting. I'd be happy to be part of that part. <laughs> um, and Klaus, perhaps, uh, what what are the the concrete next steps that that the Nordic region could could take to uh, to further this this transition that that you've been looking at? I think first of all, we we have to to look ourselves in the mirror and see that each Nordic country are rather small uh, compared in a global scale, but together we are the eleven largest uh, economy in the world as a region. So, so we can actually lead the transition and the energy cooperation today is strong and it will be even stronger tomorrow. I'm sure of that in the Nordic cooperation. So the Nordic countries have all the possibility to show how to make the most sustainable and integrated region in the world. And, and that's what this study can, can show. But it also needs some action, of course. And this is where the politicians then have to take in. We're just showing them possible feasible way of doing and actually showing that it is feasible. We can do it. Before we, we finish, we just need to round the peer review of the show where I will ask each of you to, to bring any anything that you want uh, to the listeners to, to look further into. Of course, we will provide uh, links to all the references mentioned uh, to the report uh, and, and to the background documentation in the show notes of this episode, but also for, for anything that may show up here in the peer review. So, uh, Klaus, you want to go ahead? I can go ahead. Uh, first of all, I would like to to say that you should, of course, uh, download the report behind this. There's uh, reports and materials you can download. You can download from our website, which is uh, the nordicenergy.org. Uh, that's one. Then there's another study that I think is also relevant for those who want to to kind of dig into to what is, is how is it actually looking in the Nordic right now. And we have made another study calling Renewables in the Nordic that is actually giving the state of, of the art of how far have we come to, to reach the the EU climate and, and renewable targets in, in the EU. Uh, I think that's quite interesting to, to look at as well. And then if you are interested in, in Nordic issues in, in general, uh, there, there's something called uh, Nordic Talks, which can I think the podcast can be look, can be downloaded from, from uh, Norden.org uh, homepage. And that just tell anything about why, why, what are we doing in the Nordics. So it's quite nice. interesting. And then maybe I'll, I'll just also uh, add, add one thing on your behalf, which is I think there you have an upcoming uh, Nordic uh, Energy Challenge yeah, that I was participating in last year, actually, uh, where you have uh, researchers and anyone who wants uh, who, who wants to make their bid on, on energy transition. Is, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, each year we, we try to engage everybody in, in the region, all stakeholders, all are welcome, both scientists, uh, researchers, uh, industry partners, to come up with uh, innovative solutions for a challenge. This year's challenge is, is screening the transport. So so I hope that there will be a lot of uh, people coming in trying to, to come up with solutions for that. We will announce the winner of the Nordic Energy Challenge in September. 
from Helsinki, but it will be streamed online as well. Interesting. So, and I can say that we we haven't actually spent the prize money that we won last year, but I think we will host some energy beers also in September in in Copenhagen. So, if you're in Copenhagen in September, uh, drop me a line and you can be invited to to spend some of the the money on beer. Kenneth, any any final uh, recommendations for for the listeners? Maybe not recommendation, but just some some. Uh Some what I'm um, experiencing right now, uh, working with climate and energy have been uh, quite depressing for many years, because uh, a lot of talk and no uh, no action. Uh, uh, now the drop in prices on some of the uh, key technologies has really pushed this, because investors start seeing that uh, there's good business cases in wind and solar and so on, and that actually start pushing the whole thing. But uh, working with the governments around the world right now, I'm working in Ukraine, Vietnam and Azerbaijan. It's amazing to see that in all in these countries they are focusing on uh, on how they can fulfill the Paris Agreement. And that was not happening five years ago. They were not like mm. even talking about a reduction in, in, in their projections. So so I think that actually makes a bit optimistic but uh, of course we are running out of time. You is entering again the Paris Agreement is of course also something that uh, gives a bit of hope but uh, we need to keep up the pace or even speed it up. That's good final words of recommendation. Um, I think all three of us will do our part in, in that transition. Thank you, Klaus, and thank you, Kenneth. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. As always, you can find links to the resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Sound design is by Dia Cesar and the podcast is hosted by Technical University of Denmark's Sustainability Division. We publish whenever we can make schedules meet, so consider it a surprise gift in your inbox. Speaking of gifts, we really, really would like all of this good research to reach as many people as possible. So it is actually a tremendous help if you can share this episode with your friends and colleagues. We see very concrete gains in the audience when someone shares this podcast, so you can actually make a difference here. And thanks again for following Energy Policy Casts.